warning to each of you. It's good for us to be back together in corporate worship together, is it not? Amen. Um, Let's continue uh, with our hearts and minds bowed to the Lord in prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you and give you praise this morning that your character and your goodness and your faithfulness and your love your energy and power were exactly the same back in 1300 as they are today in 2019. We thank you for being the unchanging God through the generations, for uh, displaying yourself and steering history long before we, any of us were on this planet. And we thank you for the present moment and the fact that all of that remains true in our lives. And Lord, we know that unless you come back before we die, that we will one day die and that new generations will come and you will continue to be faithful and good and loving and strong and sovereign over every affair within humanity. And so we thank you, Lord, for your rock-solid solidity through the generations. And Lord, we thank you for the minds that you have given us to to just begin to comprehend all of this. We thank you for the minds that you've given us that can um, compute and process language, the language that you have given us in your word. Thank you for understanding. Uh, Thank you for insight. And Lord, now as we open your word again and as we consider your greatness and goodness, we pray, uh, give us minds that are alert, Lord, and help us to hear what you are saying to your church And Father, may we go from this place, Uh, some of us need to be disturbed if we're too complacent. Uh, Some of us need to be comforted if we are disturbed. So I pray, Lord, that you would, in your pleasure, do these things in this hour. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'd like to jump right into our passage in Colossians Colossians chapter 1. Um, Our purpose at this church this morning is to worship Jesus together and to rejoice in Jesus Christ together. And Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, is like gasoline for the fires of worship. I want to ask you to stand in reverence for the Word of God. And I want to, I know it was read uh, just a few moments ago by Chris, but it bears repeating. I'd like to read the passage again to you. So please stand. So we're going to read through this again, and then afterward we'll go back and um, we'll try to mark a few of the specifics that that are found here. So the Apostle Paul is writing. He writes of Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything 
he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the two basic themes in this passage that I want to draw our attention to in particular are, A, how Christ is described here as all-powerful and all-authoritative, so his creative power and his total authority over everything and his full divinity and his reconciling power. All of this is laid out here in a magnificent way. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, note well what I would call phrases of totality that are sprinkled liberally throughout this passage. So five times in these six verses, we have the phrase, all things. Did you notice that? So in verse 16, by him, all things were created. And then all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. In verse 18, toward the end, we have the word everything. In verse 19, we have the word all again. And then finally in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself, how many things? All things. So it's like the Apostle Paul is going out of his way to show us how Christ reigns absolutely, supremely over all things, all things, over every single thing in the universe, that nothing, nothing whatsoever can be disconnected from the sovereign supremacy of Jesus Christ the Lord. It's like Paul wants to emphasize the fact that, as Charles Spurgeon once put it, Jesus is the center and the explanation of the whole universe. My friends, the implication of this passage is breathtaking. The implication is that everything and anything that came into being in the universe that we ever set our minds on exists because of Christ and for Christ and for his glory. Photosynthesis and onions and electrons and lionfish, and you, and maple trees, and gravity, and conscience, and consciousness, and soil, 
and cadmium and love and the Sargasso Sea, family, the raw materials for politics and the raw materials for psychology and the raw materials for computer science and art and rocketry, language, the Overtone series, I had to throw at least one musical one in there, Andromeda, Orion, Heat and Cold, Laughter, all of it because of Christ and for Christ. He is the center and the explanation and the goal of all things. This is the claim of our passage. Now, friends, as concerns the life of the mind, which is what we've been talking about for these weeks, as concerns the life of the mind, this has huge ramifications. Listen to Mark Knoll as Noel describes what these verses in Colossians 1 mean for the life of the mind. Noel says this. I want you to listen carefully. He says, the apostle says here in Colossians 1, he says, in effect, that if we study anything in the realms of nature or the realms of the spirit, we study what came into existence through Jesus Christ. Likewise, if we study human interactions or spiritual human interactions, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, we are studying realms brought into existence by Jesus Christ. If our study concerns predictability, uniformity, regularity, We are working in the domains of the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. If our study, says Noel, if our study concerns beauty, power, or agency, it is the same. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And if we succeed to any degree... We are only following after Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What I'm trying to show you here is that God has given us a massive breadth of subject matter in his universe, and that he's given us the green light to engage our minds with it to the praise of his glory. Now, yes, of course, we must make the Bible the primary object of our study. Uh, We must love him with our mind as we prayerfully meditate on and study scripture. Psalm 119 is a classic example of how the study of scripture in human life is vaunted to a place of primacy. 
The study of the Bible must, of course, have a place of priority in our lives. But God himself, I want you to see this, God himself commends the study of the wide breadth of his created universe where we can see and where we can marvel at his magnificent ingenuity and his creative grace. Have you noticed, for example, how many times the Bible itself directs us to go out and consider creation? In Proverbs 6, God wants us to go find an anthill and study ants. Solomon himself was a naturalist. Solomon was a biologist who studied trees, birds, reptiles, and fish, according to 1 Kings chapter 4. In Matthew 6, Jesus wants us to go out and look at lilies and go look at birds. Consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies. In Psalm 19, God encourages us there to look up to the heavens and see how they declare the glory of God and how the sky proclaims God's handiwork. In the latter chapters of Job, God turns Job's eyes directly to the creation so that Job will acknowledge the sheer wisdom and glory of God in what God has created. Scripture, in fact, often calls us to put down our Bibles and go out and into God's created world to study it, to engage our minds with it, and to see how God's glory presents itself there, and to learn important, very important lessons. And, at several points, Scripture also endorses or commends the study of knowledge and wisdom from cultures outside the culture of God's people. Have you noticed that? 1 Kings 4.30 acknowledges, at least, that there was wisdom, there was wisdom in cultures east of Israel and that there was wisdom over in Egypt. Zechariah 9.2 says that during the time of Zechariah, at least, Tyre and Sidon were very wise. Acts 7.22 tells us favorably that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That Moses was mighty in his words and in his deeds. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends were educated in Babylonian literature and language for three years. And in Daniel 1.17, we are told that God, God gave these young men skill in all literature and wisdom, which indicates to us that the Babylonian educational program was within the will 
of God. And then over in Acts chapter 17, Paul, the apostle, who evidently, as you read his letters, who evidently studied Greek and Roman thought in a very intensive way, he has no problem quoting from two different pagan poets. In Acts 7.28, as Paul preaches to the people in Athens, uh, he, he's used his mind to study Greek and Roman rhetoric, and he employs in Acts 17.28 both Cretan and Cilician poetry as he preaches to the people. The point again is, friends, Colossians 1 told us effectively that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! To quote Abraham Kuyper. And the Bible itself encourages us all over the place to engage our minds in the study of God's whole universe, including created realities and cultures and social phenomena. But always to do that breadth of intellectual exploration from within the framework of a specifically Christian worldview. As Christians, we are people who will look at all of life with a specific compass or through a particular set of lenses. We have a worldview, yes, but ours as believers is a specifically Christian worldview. As examples here, As Christians, we look at all of human history, with all of its details, as held within the sovereign hand of God. And you won't find that in your general history textbook at McGill. But as Christians, we look at all of history as held within the sovereign hand of God, including genocidal dictators. We view rivers and ecological cycles and gravity as being created and sustained right now by the direct power of Jesus Christ. We see time itself as a created vehicle that falls within eternity. We see God as the one who made all sciences possible. Whenever we read as Christians, we bring everything that we read into confrontation with Christ and with the teachings of Christ and with the purposes of Christ and his kingdom. We find God behind all artistic possibilities since God, when you stop to think about it, is the ultimate creative abstract artist. When God created a giraffe, the giraffe didn't reference anything else that existed. It was just giraffe. Talk about abstract art. 
Whenever we listen to the cry of a person's heart, we see that person as an image bearer of God. That's how we look at them. As an image bearer of God who lives on a fallen planet like we do. And when we develop positions on contemporary issues like extramarital sex or film censorship or labor laws or bioethics, we do so according to what God has revealed as truth. A worldview, according to David Wells, is a framework for understanding the world. It is the perspective through which we see what is ultimate, what is real, what our experience means, and what our place is in the cosmos. As Christians, our worldview happens to be aligned with the worship of Father, Son, and Spirit. As Christians, our worldview takes creation, the fall into sin, and redemption as its major categories through which we view and interpret absolutely everything that we encounter. Well, I would argue, friends, that it's the development, the development of this kind of Christian perspective that we've just been talking about, the development of this kind of Christian mind that sees every single part of life through the lens of Christ and His truth, that this is an absolute necessity in today's postmodern culture that we talked about last week. It's a necessity if the church's engagement with culture would be robust and would be impactful and would be effective. This is why this is important. So the question is, how do we get there? How is a strong Christian mind cultivated? Well, of course, there are so many things that we could say here. One of the most important things that we will need to maintain as Christians who desire to engage the mind, but who live in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward Christians... One of the most important things for us to maintain is close and nurturing fellowship and worship with other Christians who likewise take seriously the call of Jesus to nurture the mind. It would be a good idea for us to find a partner, preferably of the same gender unless you're married, where where both people commit to a program of specific mind engagement for Jesus Christ and his kingdom, where you meet regularly for fellowship, discussion, worship, and where support and building up of one another in this area of the mind can happen. Also, in order to cultivate the Christian mind, it's going to mean, listen, it's going to mean that we move past a common hurdle or obstacle that many Christians have artificially erected, which is the erroneous idea, the false idea, that faith and thinking are incompatible. Or that the head and the heart 
must remain forever separate. Those are, frankly, false ideas that cannot be borne out from a close reading of Scripture. First of all, the life of faith must necessarily, must necessarily involve both head and heart working in tandem, working together. Otherwise, we are left with something that is less than faith. Listen to the wise way that John Piper details this for us. He says this, The mind serves to know the truth that fuels the fires of the heart. The mind serves to know the truth that fuels the fires of the heart. He says, the apex, high point of glorifying God is enjoying him with the heart. But this is an empty emotionalism where that joy is not awakened and sustained by true views of God for who he really is. That is mainly what the mind is for. Now notice there how Piper insists with his Bible open that heart and mind must both be working in tandem if the life of faith is to be real and vital. We might go so far as to say, as J.P. Moreland has said, that in fact faith is built on reason. Faith is built on reason. Or as William Edgar has described it, faith is informed trust. Informed trust that is built on understanding and built on a sort of assent to what is understood. Again, the point here, friends, is that the mind and heart must not be separated. In the life of faith, they work in tandem. As believers who've been told by Jesus, commanded by Jesus, to love God with all our minds, as believers who know from Colossians 1 that Christ is connected to all of reality, it behooves us to be the most inquisitive people that anyone can find anywhere on earth. Clifford Williams has written some words to believers about the value of being inquisitive while, we were on, while we're on our Christian pilgrimage on this earth. Williams says this, For many people, inquisitiveness has supported faith by providing reasons for believing, by helping to discover the need for faith, and by uncovering false faith. He says, being inquisitive can also expand faith. When we are inquisitive, we explore new ways that faith connects to life experiences. We ask how it can operate in work and in play. We probe the nature of hope, forgiveness, and other key Christian concerns. In doing so, our faith opens up and spreads out. 
In addition, says Williams, inquisitiveness can make faith more active and more alive. Inquisitive people of faith, he says, look for fresh ways of living out their faith. That's maybe a very basic step in cultivating the Christian mind, but there it is. Be ever inquisitive. Be more inquisitive about the world than you currently are. And read. One of Pastor Brent's favorite subjects, the subject of reading. Now, we're going to spend some time with this. Have you noticed, friends, in 2 Timothy 4.13, it's very interesting, how the Apostle Paul asked Timothy to bring books when Timothy was coming to, to visit with Paul. Make sure you bring the books. right? I can't stress enough here the value of reading in cultivating the Christian mind. Reading the Bible, yes, of course, first and foremost, but reading good books across a variety of subjects as well. To help you get excited about reading and the value of reading, if you're currently not very excited about it, uh, I want to give you a couple of great quotes from James Emery White from his book, A Mind for God. White says this, A single book can deepen your understanding, expand your vision, sensitize your spirit, deepen your soul, ignite your imagination, stir your passions, and widen your wisdom. Friends, if we would only put down our phones and our YouTube videos, and I'm talking as a guy who's guilty, Netflix, games, we would just discipline ourselves to pick up books instead. If we would only fight against the trivializing tendencies and the juvenile tendencies of our culture. White says this also, which I love. He says, from reading alone could I gain a sense of the currents shaping the world. From reading alone could I understand the prevailing worldviews assailing Christianity. From reading alone could I place myself in the vanguard of taking the word of God to the word of the world. Reading would fill my mind with virtually limitless knowledge, instruction, and insight, and it would increase my mind and force my mind to break through barriers of stagnancy. Yes! What adventures and what delights and treasures of knowledge we forfeit if we don't read. Now, will a disciplined and consistent schedule of reading take work? Of course it will. Of course it will. For one thing, it's going to take time in your life. You need to know that. It's going to take time in your life. To cultivate the Christian mind via reading will take 
time. Because you need time not only to read and comprehend what you're reading uh, as you read it, but also you need time to further reflect and to meditate through what you have read. So just know this, it's going to take time in your life. And we will also need to learn good reading habits as the church, as we read. Let me suggest a few things here in no particular order. First of all, let's talk about Bible reading. When you read your Bible, I'm going to say some things here that might be a little controversial, but I'm going to say them anyway because I'm convicted that they're important. When you read your Bible, resist the urge to limit your reading to a devotional style reading where only tiny pieces of the Bible are read at a time. Sometimes not even with the Bible open, but with the daily bread or another devotional pamphlet open. Resist making that your regular habit in Bible reading. Certainly that has its place, don't get me wrong. But if we would be serious about cultivating mind as Christ's church, it's going to mean serious engagement with longer units of Scripture, perhaps with a Bible dictionary and a concordance and other study materials close at hand. It's awful quiet in here. And as you approach Scripture, be less interested in interpreting it and more interested in seeing how it interprets you. And be less interested in approaching the Bible as a self-help book and more interested in approaching it as the self-disclosure of God. And let the Bible reveal your biases and challenge your biases. Each and every one of us has them and we bring them to the reading of Scripture. Now, in reading outside of the Bible, I would caution you to resist the urge, Christians, with as much might as you can muster, resist the urge to read only Christian self-help stuff. Don't do it. J.P. Moreland has described most Christian self-help literature this way as being filled with self-serving content, many slogans, simplistic moralizing, a lot of stories and pictures, and inadequate diagnosis of issues that place no demand on the reader. As much as you can, avoid that stuff, and we all know that there, there's tons of it out there. As we develop and nurture the Christian mind, we are going to need to learn to discern the difference between inferior writing and quality writing. And we will need to seek out the quality books because life is short and because that we need to engage with material that is going to strengthen our ability to stand as Christians in this postmodern, secularizing culture that is increasingly becoming more hostile to us as the church. This is so important. And in addition here, I would also say this. 
that just because a book is new might not necessarily mean that it's worth reading. In fact, we should make it a habit to regularly search out old, tried-and-true books that have withstood the test of, of time. Famously, in an essay titled On the Reading of Old Books, C.S. Lewis said that if a person was forced to read only new books or only old books, that person should read the old books. Lewis said, It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one till you have read an old one in between. He said, if that is too much for you, you should at least read one old one to every three new ones. And why? Because as Lewis observed, I'm quoting him again, every age has its own outlook. Amen and amen and amen. Every age has its own outlook. He said, it is specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means the old books. So I'll give you an example. For me as a pastor in my world... um, I need to read books like, uh, by authors like Augustine, by Aquinas, by G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, the Church Fathers, written many decades and centuries ago because those books give me profound insights that help me navigate pitfalls in the current theological moment. The point is, be sure to read old books along with any new ones that you read. Another good thing to do in our reading is to purposely challenge ourselves from time to time to read books that are a little bit over our heads in order to train our minds like a muscle. You have to take your mind to the gym. J.P. Moreland says, if all you do is read simple books or those that overemphasize stories or practical application, You'll never learn to think for yourself as a mature Christian, nor will you develop a trained mind. So friends, try to find from time to time reading material that stretches your ability to comprehend. Related to that, we should also force ourselves as Christians who want to cultivate the Christian mind to read books here and there where an author presents a view or views that go contrary to our own view. Again, Moreland is good here when he says this, expose yourself to ideas with which you disagree and let yourself be motivated to excel intellectually by the exposure. I know it's hard to do, but we should be doing it. He says the point is to spend time around those who do not simply reinforce your own way of looking at things. And there are two advantages to this. For one thing, we can learn from our critics. For another, such exposure can move us to realize just how serious the war of ideas really is and how inadequately prepared we are to engage in that contest. 
So read stuff that's outside your comfort zone from time to time. Read authors with whom you disagree. The general encouragement we've been giving here this morning is to read and to read well. Uh, The Pulitzer Prize-winning Will Durant once said this. He said, can you spare one hour a day to read? One hour a day. He said, let me have seven hours a week, and I will make you a scholar and philosopher. In four years, you shall be as well-educated as any new-fledged doctor of philosophy in the land. How's that for an incentive to go out and find quality books and read them. John Piper has calculated that even the slowest readers amongst us can read about 3,900 pages a year if they read only 20 minutes a day, six days per week. 3,900 pages. So if an average book is 250 pages long, that means you can read 15 books per year. 20 minutes a day, six days a week. Or if you want to read masterpieces of literature that are, say, 1,500 pages long, you could read three of those in a year at the same rate of reading. Piper says, This astonishing discovery freed me from the paralysis of not starting great, mind-shaping, heart-enriching books because I lacked enough big blocks of time. Friends, the point is we can do this as Christ church, as the people under the Lord who said, love God with all your mind. We can do this. 20 minutes of reading a day is all it takes to make a good start. Okay, we could go on here (laughs) about the crucial place of reading in the cultivation of the Christian mind, but time is short. The happy results of cultivating the Christian mind in the ways we've suggested today are many. They are plenteous. Uh, So, for example, as we take time to cultivate the Christian mind, what's going to happen? Our Christian worldview will be sharpened and filled out and strengthened, and it will come into clearer focus. And as we cultivate the Christian mind, we will be training ourselves to look at all of life, all of its details, all of its experience in a much more integrated, coherent fashion, seeing all things that we experience from the vantage point of Christ and his supremacy. So that the line between sacred and secular becomes much more blurry because now we see that false distinction for what it is. In fact, all of life is sacred. And as Christians who rigorously cultivate the mind, we will also learn to have a balanced view of human persons, including ourselves. To see persons as both the high point of God's creation, but yet radically affected by sin. As human beings, we are both great and we are wretched, to use the terminology of Blaise Pascal. So that simultaneously, 
as Christians who've trained our minds, we are at once skeptical concerning human achievement, skeptical concerning human possibility, but yet at the same time we are also passionate proponents of human value and human dignity. Cultivating the Christian mind brings the nature of humanity into true and proper focus. As Christians with nurtured Christian minds, we will also see that nothing, absolutely nothing, exists on its own. That there is a God behind all things. In short, with cultivated Christian minds, we will learn to have a Colossians 1 view of all things. To see God connected to the conversations that we have. To see God connected to the electricity when we flip the light switch on. To see God connected to the textbooks that we're reading as we read in school. To see God connected to sunshine and to pain, and to jazz trios, and politics, and sautéed garlic, and skydiving. And all the while, friends, we will be careful to recall that our standing before Almighty God has absolutely nothing to do with our intellect or our intellectual capacity or our intellectual endeavors, that we are all beggars, no matter the state of our minds, and that everything has come to us as gift by God's grace, most especially our redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we cultivate the Christian mind, we will guard against trusting in our own wisdom or feeling pride in our intellectual abilities or living for the praise of people. Rather, we will humbly and worshipfully submit ourselves, including our minds and their operation, to the one who made them. As John Piper has written, We will make all our thinking a partner in God's ultimate purpose to magnify the supreme worth of his glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the calling and commission and the work that you have given us is so massive. And sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of it, but we know, dear God, that you have drawn near to us, that it is about your ministry and your power at work and not our own. We thank you for using us, even though we are frail and on the boat one minute, off the next, hot for you one day, cold the next. We thank you for being faithful to us even when we are faithless. And Lord God, I pray that as we uh, study this area of, of, of loving you with all our minds, that you would help us, Lord, get creative in how to do that, but that we would do it, Lord, 
for your praise and for your glory. Help us, dear God, we pray this week in Jesus' name. Amen.